hello, and welcome to episode number 21 of The Music Plays the Band. I'm your host, Rob Koritz of the Dark Star Orchestra. I hope you're all safe and well. But right off the top, I want to thank you all for the overwhelming response to episode number 20 with Donna Jean Godshow McKay. It had the best first week of any episode yet, and I've gotten some really positive feedback from you all, so thank you so much again for listening. Well, finally, it is break time. We just finished our last week of the summer tours, and I say tours, plural, since we're only working weekends, and I am so grateful that we were able to do it. But after 34 flights in five months, I am ready for some much-needed home time with the family. No travel means I can relax a little bit, uh, do school pickups and drop-offs, coach the kids' sports, and concentrate on the podcast. So this is going to be just a great six weeks that I'm really looking forward to. Our fall is still coming together. Uh, we just announced some shows at the Capitol Theater in New York, but it doesn't appear that the plans we made for a full indoor tour are going to be possible. We will be out there, although it'll probably just be weekends still. And when we made our original plans for the fall, it was uh, back in June when things were looking good, and uh, they have most certainly taken a turn for the worse since then. But we will be out there playing as much as we can in a safe environment, so uh, we got something to look forward to. I am happy to welcome to the program today Mark Karen. Mark is a longtime collaborator with the members of the Dead, having played in the other ones, projects with Mickey and Phil, and of course 15 years with Bob Weir and Rat Dog. Also joining me today is Tim Zuha of Jerry Pranksters out of Lincoln, Nebraska. So as always, I am very, very glad you're here with me today, and before we get to the first segment, I would humbly ask you to support the podcast any way you can. There's the monthly Patreon subscription, which gives you exclusive bonus content, including outtakes, expanded interviews and segments, videos and stories from the road and now back at home again, uh, community hang time with me, and much, much more. You can also make a one-time contribution through PayPal, and a portion of all the proceeds goes to the Rex Foundation, the charity started by the Grateful Dead. You can find out about all of this and more at www.themusicplaystheband.net. And wherever you are listening to the podcast, please rate, like, and review. So let's move it along. The first 20 are behind us. Now let's get to episode number 21. The Black Music Moment is brought to you by The Clean Store, brandingandapparel.com for all your branding and apparel needs. Technology-driven solutions and concierge service for managing programs of all sizes. The Black Music Moment is our attempt at chronicling the profound influence of black music and musicians on the Grateful Dead. Today we honor Junior Parker, and you'll hear a lot of similarities to some other artists that we've spotlighted previously. Herman Jr. Parker was born in March of 1932 on a plantation near Bobo, Mississippi. He moved with his mother to West Memphis, Arkansas during the 1940s. He sang in gospel groups as a child and beginning in his teenage years played on various blues circuits. His biggest influence as a harmonica player was Sonny Boy Williamson, with whom he worked before moving on to work for Howlin' Wolf in 1949. Around 1950, he began performing with a coalition of performers in Memphis known as the Beale Streeters that included another artist we featured here, Bobby Blue Bland, in addition to B.B. King. In 1951, Parker formed his own band, the Blue Flames, and soon was discovered by talent scout Ike Turner for Modern Records. Turner recorded his first release, and that record brought him to the attention of Sam Phillips, who signed him and his band to Sun Records in 1953. 
They recorded three successful tunes for Sun, including Mystery Train, which Elvis Presley later made popular and Jerry Garcia covered some years later. He spent 1953 touring with Bobby Bland and eventually landed at Duke Records, where he continued to have a string of hits on the R&B charts. His first hit for Duke is the one we will hear today, Next Time You See Me. He continued to record for other labels, but with not nearly the success of his son in Duke years. Parker died young in 1971 at the age of 39 during surgery for a brain tumor. While never achieving the widespread success of his bandmates Bland or King, Parker is best remembered for his velvety smooth voice and excellent harmonica playing. It's no wonder Pigpen was a fan, as well as Garcia. Now, Pigpen introduced a lot of this older blues and R&B to the band, and Next Time You See Me showed up very early. The Dead debuted it in March of 1966 and played it with regularity, but like many of the other older blues tunes, it disappeared from the repertoire when Pigpen left the band in 1972. The Dead played Mystery Train one time in 1970, and Garcia first performed it in 1972. It became a staple of his set lists for the next decade. So here's Junior Parker with the original 1953 recording of his song, Next Time You See Me. Next time you see me, things won't be the same. Yes, next time you see me, things won't be the same. And if it hurts you, my darling, you only have yourself. Like a true, true said, all that shine is not gold. Yes, like a true, true said, all that shine is not gold. And like the good book said, you got to read just what you sow. Cheated, oh, oh, for so long Where you lie, cheated, oh, oh, for so long You're just a wronged on woman Another queen is on your throne desire a life that is in alignment with your authentic self and purpose? Hi, I'm Beth Koritz, licensed professional counselor and intuitive clarity coach. For the past 12 years, I have been helping my one-to-one coaching clients do just that with my three-step clarity coaching program. If you are ready to gain clarity by claiming your path as who you are versus who you're trying to be, to gain confidence by activating your inner powers of self-intuition and manifestation, and take soul-led action by creating your life in alignment with your purpose, passions, and self. Then go to themusicplaystheband.net and click on the Authenticity Academy logo on the sponsor page to book your free call with me. I hope to see you soon. For today's edition of There is a Grateful Dead cover band in every town, we head to Lincoln, Nebraska to talk to Tim Zuha of Jerry Pranksters. Okay, so I am here today with Tim Zuha from Jerry Pranksters out of Lincoln, Nebraska. How are you today, man? Oh, just great. Great. Great to see you. 
Right on, man. Thank you for doing this. It's nice to meet you. So uh, Jerry Prankster's great name, by the way. Love it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a great name. Uh, you're all based. You're all based in Lincoln, Nebraska, but you travel around a bit. Yes. Uh, a little bit, not too much. We're not much of a traveling band. Uh, being in Lincoln, we're an hour away from Omaha, so we we go back and forth to Omaha. But you know, Kansas City a little bit, a little bit Denver. But um, of course, we're not traveling too much right now because of yeah. the pandemic. And um, but mostly, we're just a local, just a local Grateful Dead tribute band, and that plays between Lincoln and Omaha. Can you? Uh... Can you give me a brief rundown? Um, when and how did you all get started? What's the history of Jerry Pranksters? Well, I mean, I played in another Grateful Dead, uh, not a tribute band, but a cover band called the Grateful Dudes, um, which was out of Omaha. But Jerry Prankster started in, in 06. And a couple members from the Grateful Dudes and, um, and a couple other guys you know we we're uh, what we what we could boast was that all everyone in the band had seen jerry garcia um actually the old man saw the you know the band with keith and donna back in, in the 70s here in lincoln <laughs> you know so um you know that and that that's uh um the first show that we played was a benefit for our local community radio station for the Jerry Garcia birthday bash. And which, you know, that community radio station has been playing the grateful dead hour for years and years, you know, but um, what's nice about um, being in between Lincoln and Omaha is that we were able to um, have the two, families of deadheads from both cities have a place to meet but yeah it's just pretty much just a fun thing for us it's you know it's not a full-on business or anything like that you know right. if, if i wasn't doing this i would probably be on a bowling team or something like that <laughs> but it's a good way to get together with the guys and have a good time and make a lot of people ha- happy and as you as go. you know um we have the greatest fans in the world. How we, often we, we play almost every weekend, almost every much. weekend. Wow. That's great. Both nights. So one or two nights each weekend. Well, at least one of them, but, nice. but um, before the pandemic, we were playing almost every weekend. So that's great. And you guys have been able to start playing again now. Uh, uh, mostly outdoor stuff, you right. know, um, we're still shying away from the smaller clubs. Um, we're fortunate. We have a couple deadhead clubs in, in Omaha, the shakedown street and the broke down palace. And, but they're pretty small. So we kind of, kind of been, uh, shying away from that right now. What, what is, uh, I, I looked at some video and I know you have, I know you're the only drummer, but what's the rest of the instrumentation in the band? Um, well, there we have, um, um well originally we started off with mike dowdy and, and mark leaker on guitar randy miller on keyboards and brian pickle gherkin on bass and myself um 
Mike had the dropout because, you know, he started a family and started working for the post office, the true U.S. Blues. And <laughs> so we we had uh, um, one of the former members from the Grateful Dudes fill in for us uh, for a while, uh, Elmo, Elwin Mosman. And uh, but we could also do the four piece, you know, right. with just Mark. So we do five piece. We'd play all grateful dead. And with the four piece, we'd play some grateful dead. And then like second set would be strictly JGB, you know, which was all, which is a lot of fun. So we have some options there. Do you all, do you take a, uh, <clears throat> do you take a specific approach to interpreting and performing the music? Not, not really. We, we kind of do it our own way, you know, with the pranksters, it is, it is pretty much all Grateful Dead or JGB, you know. We're like with the Grateful Dudes, there we played other music too, some originals and stuff like that. But with this band, it's all Grateful Dead. Um, and being kind of a bar band, uh, more or less a bar band, we play festivals and stuff like that, but we're playing in bars. We're fortunate that the Grateful Dead covered a lots of tunes, so we can play stuff like big river all over now and all that stuff to kind of start off and not scare the straight, uh, the squares away right off the bat and then <laughs> get all crazy later on in the night, you know, but so that, that, that works out pretty cool for us. You know, do you guys cover like the whole, the whole gamut of the catalog from the sixties through the nineties? Yeah, we, we, we have a rotating about 150 songs with the, with the five piece and about 120 with the four piece. Right on. Right. That's, that's a pretty good, good repertoire right there. And, and, you know, it's, we try to cycle them through so we don't forget how to do them, you know, but sure. um, being one drummer trying to emulate the eight legged monster of the grateful dead is, uh, <laughs> you know, not the easiest thing in the world to do for some songs, you know? So I want to ask you a drummer question then, because you are a one drummer band, which, you know, makes it, it, there's some stuff that you know it's really difficult to 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 really how, how i don't want to say this there's some stuff that really requires two drummers to get that full sound so you have to right. approach it a little differently so i'm sure you know you're playing like yourself in order to do that but personally speaking as a drummer are you more drawn to mickey or billy well uh billy you know with the the more technical end of it you know we're I always felt like Mickey was more of the the flash, you know, the 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 extra, you know. Yeah, I guess Billy. Um, <laughs> people, you know, we were talking. We already touched on this a little bit, but I want to go back to it. You know, people around the country wouldn't necessarily think of Nebraska as a hotbed of dead activity. You know, I know, I know the dead only played a, that played Nebraska a handful of times, and I think the last time was in '78, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Yep. And I, I remember, and you mentioned, I, I know we played Lincoln once. That might might have been the only time we played Lincoln. Uh, you played a couple times. You have played we? at the Rococo Theater, which right. was a really nice venue. But the other place was that Persian Auditorium, oh, yeah. which is where the where the Grateful Dead played. But you right. guys played down in the base down in the basement. Right, I remember that now. And you know, and we've played Omaha just a few times, and and we always have a great crowd there. So you know. Nebraska is not necessarily thought of, of that hotbed of dead activity, but you've got a great community. So, and I know this firsthand, what, yeah. what is it? What do you think it is about this music that cultivates such a devoted following and it's such a great community? Well, 
we went and saw the Grateful Dead. You know, the first time I saw the Grateful Dead was in 1985. And of course, we are 10 to eight hours away from any major city, which is a long ways to travel, you know. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's not like, you know, living in St. Louis and being able to, you know, or living in Chicago and right. having the band come through. We always had to travel to go see them. And, uh, you know, it's just, yeah, it's the music. Every, the people that love the Grateful Dead love the Grateful Dead. That's, and you still, you all see a lot of the same fans at every show? They've been coming out oh, for yeah. years? Yeah, there's, there's lots of people that have been coming to see the band for years, yes. You're also, though, I mean, Lincoln, you're in a college town. So do you get the younger ones, too? And do you see them cycle yes, through? And that, and that is, you know, what? how much more grateful can you be being in a band to have to be able to marriage that older crowd and the younger crowd together. And it's just, it's beautiful. You know, it's just really beautiful. Not, not a lot of bands get that opportunity and, and to have a crowd that starts dancing on the first song. There's not a a lot of bar bands that are that fortunate, you know, no warm up necessary. Let's just get right to the business at hand. Yep. Yep. That's right. Right on, man. Well, hey, I can't thank you enough, Tim, for taking the time today and sharing a little bit about what goes on down there in Lincoln. And hopefully one of these days we'll get back out that way. It it wasn't that long ago that, in fact, I know exactly when it was. You kind of remember these things. The last time we were in Omaha, it was in in October. It was the day Tom Petty died. Oh, wow. I remember being in Omaha when we found out that Tom Petty passed That was probably at the... At the slowdown. At the slowdown. It was like October 3rd or 4th. So it's coming up pretty quick. And uh, I remember that, you know, you always remember certain things where you were when certain things happened. I was in Omaha at the slowdown when I found out that Tom Petty had passed away. And on that morbid note. Very much missed. Yes, for sure. Well, again, that's Tim Zuha from Jerry Pranksters. I really thank you so much for being here today, man. Thanks for taking the time. I feel like we could just talk for hours, really. <laughs> you know, the premise of this whole thing is that musicians that love the dead love to talk about the dead. That's right. That's right. Big uh, big thanks to Tim and Jerry Pranksters for doing this, man. Have a great day, and I will hopefully see you down the road. Hey, I think it's super cool that you're doing this. It's pretty awesome, man. Thank you very much. All right, I want to thank Tim for being here today and sharing his... Uh, his perspective on what it's like out there in Nebraska. If you like what you're hearing today and would like to support the podcast, we have two different ways for you to do that. You can make a one-time contribution via PayPal or become a patron with a monthly subscription that includes expanded video versions of our segments, all of the outtakes that don't make it onto the podcast, community hang time, videos from home and on the road, including some old DSO footage, and much, much more. You can support the cause, learn more about the program and our sponsors, read the blog, or contact me through our website, www.themusicplaystheband.net. And if you have the time, please like, rate, and review the podcast on whatever player you might use. Again, as always, thank you for your continued support and for helping to spread the word about the podcast. Our feature conversation is brought to you by Grateful Sweats. On Shakedown or online, go to Grateful Sweats for subtle dead designs. Search Grateful Sweats on Etsy and see for yourself designs only other heads will get when you're wearing that t-shirt with the state of tennessee with the word jet in the middle and someone says nice shirt you know they're on the bus the cap with a single finger in the air makes its point and lately i've been wearing one on stage that is a a view of the world with two eyes very subtly 
incorporated into it, and I love that one. It looks great from the stage. So look great on tour with men's and ladies' tees and tanks, caps, pins, and clearance items as low as $5. See it all at www.etsy.com slash shop slash Grateful Sweats, or click from our sponsors link at themusicplaystheband.net. I'm happy to have as my featured guest today guitarist Mark Karen. Most of you will recognize Mark from his many years in Rat Dog, but he has done all kinds of other cool stuff over the years, and I really enjoyed on touching on lots of different aspects of music in this one. Having grown up in the hate during the late 1960s, Mark saw the dead in their formative years and was fortunate enough to have been around to see all of the Bay Area bands back then. He offers a really unique perspective of the whole scene, and I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Okay, I am here today with Mark Karen. Hello, and welcome to the program, my friend. Hey, man, how are you? I'm doing great, and I know that you are super, super busy, so I really appreciate you taking the time today. Uh, you're home? You're in Cali? Yeah? I am. I am, and you know, it's it's kind of awesome. I mean, I'm starting to get super busy, and after this past year and a half plus, I, I got to say, it feels great. <laughs> yeah, I bet. What, what, how did you... If, if busy is the word, how were you able to, let's just say it this way. How'd you occupy your time during this crazy time? What'd you do to stay busy? Oh God. Um, phases, man. Uh, early on, I did the streaming thing a bit. Uh, you know, I, I, I made friends with uh, solo acoustic guitar and me playing to a computer screen. Um, and I did a fair bit of that early on. And it was cool. You know, it got me out of my little box. It let me play. It let me connect to my friends and fams. Um, but after a while I kind of burnt out on it, you know, it's just yeah. like, I'm not playing to anybody. There's no response. There's no interaction, you know? Right. So I kind of let a lot of the streaming thing go. And then what started to happen was locally anyway, uh, especially up in the mountains, like the foothills of the Sierra Nevadas and stuff like that. They weren't having a whole lot of real active cases. So there were places that you could actually go play gigs outdoors. Yeah. Uh, I didn't play a lot of them, but I was able to play enough of them that I didn't feel like I was completely starving. Right. You know, I mean, to play, you know, not right, right, right. the money part of it. Um, so there was that. And then, uh, you know, we started um, Michael Gaiman, the guy who put together Live Dead 69, which is one of the bands I've been touring with over the last couple of years or a few years. Um, he put together a new thing called the, the uh, Gilmore Project. And it's all Floyd and Gilmore stuff uh, with a bunch of, you know, reasonably known sidemen types like myself and Jeff Pivar and Kasim Sultan from uh, Rundgren's band and uh, Prairie Prince on drums and Scott Goodman's playing keyboards. And so it's, it's an eclectic but very cool mix of players. And, uh, and so we started working on that stuff. Um, we had a big live stream thing that we did from the Great American Music Hall, and uh, I remember that, yeah. And right now we're doing kind of a a zoomy thing where you know we're we're doing that thing where we each are recording our parts and videoing ourselves in our home spaces, and they're going to edit it all together later. Right on. Um, which has been a trip. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you're living in the in, in the Bay Area. You grew up in the Bay Area. Yeah. Um, can you share a little bit with us? about your, your musical upbringing, your musical childhood and your path to becoming a professional musician? Um, well, I guess the, the, the first thing I would mention is that my, my blood dad uh, was a jazz trumpet player uh, in the, in the mid, you know, early to mid-50s. 
and uh, he played all the the well-known jazz clubs in San Francisco and was a union cat and did a bunch of that kind of thing. Uh, but also used to go to all the after hours jams. And from what I gather from my mom, he jammed with Miles. He jammed with all these kinds of people, you know. And I've got some interesting stories from back then about being a kid. You know, my mom told me that uh, Dizzy Gillespie uh, met me and, and was totally charmed and actually apparently took me out for the day uh, and introduced me to uh, a Middle Eastern friend of his who actually contacted my mom and said he would like to adopt me and that he could offer me a wonderful life and that he had all sorts of money. And she was like, uh, no. <laughs> wow. Kind of a fascinating thing, you know, to be like a little two-year-old kid or whatever. I, I guess maybe I was more like four. I don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> We want to so buy anyway, children. How much for the little girl? Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so anyway, that's, that's, that's a little background that has very little to do with me personally. And then, uh, and then as a kid, you know, my mom didn't play any instruments, but she sang around the house. And there was always uh, Sarah Vaughn, Ella Fitzgerald, Dinah Washington, Ray Charles, Miles Davis, Sonny Rollins, Horace Silver. You know, I, I mean, I, I know all those names because that's the shit I grew up with. Right. And, uh, and so I, I had a, a strong background of just constantly hearing music. And I had the blood thing of my dad. And I guess I was about eight or nine years old. Um, the Beatles happened. And I saw them on Ed Sullivan. And I went, that's for me. I want to be that. And I never looked back. You know, from that, mo from that moment on, something deep inside of me really, really understood. I didn't need to look anymore. This is what I was going to be and do. Wow. And um, I started playing guitar when I was about eight or nine, I guess. Uh, I was in my first band at about 11. You know, <laughs> we went through two names. We were the mass media and then we were the linear motion. Uh, <laughs> at 11 years old, you had those deep names already. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know, it was it was the times. I mean, I was 11 in 1966. So. Right. So you're right. In, in San Francisco. Oh, yeah. San Francisco scene, politics, hate Ashbury, blah, blah, blah. You know, uh, and uh, we had a band. Uh, by, I guess I was about 13 when uh, a couple of friends of mine and I started a band in junior high school. Uh, we were called the Joyful Watermelon. Uh, <laughs> so 60s. <laughs> and we actually did a few gigs, you know. Um, you know, we, we, there was a, a place that was named after uh, one of the places in The Hobbit, Ribbletad Vorden. Uh, we played that. We, you know, it's, it, it was great. You know, it was a great way to cut my teeth, and what, I just kind of never looked back. From what then kind on, of music was, were you playing in those bands? Um, what the other bands in the Hate were playing, kind of. You know, there was a lot of sort of. We weren't that deep. We weren't adults. You know, so we didn't go into the blues the way some of the grown-ups that were right. doing it were doing it. But by default we got into the blues because so many other bands were sort of informing their music from that, you know, and some version of folk rock, you know, because that's kind of what was happening at the time. But really it was kind of whatever we could figure out how to play. We weren't that good yet, you know? <laughs> right. Well, you mentioned, you mentioned like all those singers and all the jazz crooners and, and, and vocalists that at this age though, and, and you're starting to really, hone your craft on guitar who are some of those early influences who were some yeah, of the people it that wasn't are... any of that that other stuff for me was always for a long time anyway was always in quotes my parents music right and I, I felt some kind of a need to not like it 
even though what I didn't realize was deep down in my soul, I really liked it. I loved it. So, uh, you know, so I, yeah, I wasn't doing any of the jazz thing. Um, my earliest influences, I would say pretty obviously were the Beatles. Yeah. Uh, you know, I just, I fell so deeply in love with that band and, and to this day, I think they're still my favorite band. Um, and then, you know, in junior high school, it just started being what was happening at the time. You know, we heard about this new guy that came out this with this amazing new record, this guy called Jimi Hendrix. Right. You know, so I was into the Hendrix's first album and then Axis Bold as Love. And, um, you know, I went to see uh, one of the things I like to t one of the stories I like to tell from back in those days, because I don't think that many people are aware of it. Uh, when Bill Graham had the old original Fillmore. He would have the shows on Friday and Saturday nights. And then on Sunday afternoons, at a certain point, he started having the same show from 2 to 6 instead of from 9 to 1. Hmm. And if you were 12 years old or under, you got in for free. So I saw a buttload of wonderful, wonderful shows from the time I was 11 through the time I was 12 at the old Fillmore for free. Awesome. And that's kind of how I cut my teeth, you know. Um, and what made me think of that was that one of the shows that I went to back then, it was actually a birthday show of mine. And the, the billing was uh, The Grateful Dead and The Doors. And nobody had ever heard of The Doors. They were the middle slot act. And nobody had ever heard of them. Nobody ever gave a shit about them. And as it turned out, The Dead didn't show up for their Sunday show. They just decided <laughs> not to come. But they were the just going played. to sleep. Yeah, well, yeah, probably. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But uh, but my friend Greg and I and our, our moms took us. Uh, we were there and we saw the doors and then, you know, ballsy little kid that I was. I went up on stage and introduced myself to Mr. Morrison and uh, and Robbie Krieger and I wound up having a little chat about guitar playing. He bought my friend Greg and I Cokes and we sat around and talked about guitar for a little while. Whoa. Yeah. So that was pretty. That was a cool moment in time. Um, as far as influences, gosh, I don't know. I mean, certainly Garcia. I mean, if we're talking guitar, certainly yeah. Garcia, certainly Jimmy, uh, John Cipollina a lot, um, Terry Haggerty, the guitar player from the Sons of Champlin, uh, a, 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 a very unfortunately unsung band from that era that's right. one of my top favorite bands ever in history. Wow. Um, who else? Big on Dwayne Allman, that was a couple years later, but but really big on the Fillmore East album and the Eat a Peach album. Uh, always really big on Eric Clapton. Yeah. Whether it was Cream or Domino's or, you know, I love Eric. So, so you're, you're, tw you're right in the middle of the San Francisco, <clears throat> excuse me, you're right in the middle of the San Francisco music scene at 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. And mm -hmm. so the dead are on your radar at an early age. Oh yeah, I saw I saw a buttload of those early Dead shows. I mean, from '66 till I'm not sure when the last Dead show that I saw was, but I'm gonna guess it was somewhere around '74, '75. Um, you know, so I, there was no such thing as Deadheads back then. The, right. the the term hadn't been coined yet, and I don't think too many people were following them around yet either. You know, I mean, a lot of the traditions hadn't started yet. You know, I'd go see. I'd go see a three-night run with the dead, and we'd go to all three nights. And it would basically be the same exact selection of songs, just right. in a different order. Right. You know, they only had a certain number of songs at that exactly. point. Exactly. And their jam vehicles were all the same big ones at the same yeah. time. Yeah, and it right. wasn't, you know, Bobby Song, Jerry Song, Bobby Song, Jerry Song, Bobby Song, Jerry Song. It wasn't that. 
And it wasn't, oh, they're doing Scarlet. That means they're going to do Fire. Right. You know, all those things ha- weren't in place yet. Right. Um, it was pretty early on in the whole, in the development of the whole thing. And I was a huge fan. I loved them to death. What was it that grabbed you at that time? What about that music was just, what made you a huge fan that loved them to death? Yeah, all, all of the music at that time grabbed me, truthfully, because there was so, there was so much freedom um, and so much exploration happening that the whole the vibe of of what was going on musically and otherwise in the hate was just super inspirational. There was a lot of creativity and a lot of excitement and a lot of freshness and uh, and certainly the Grateful Dead were were one of the the leaders, if not the leader, in terms of being very explorational and very open to allowing what was next to happen without necessarily having to control it, you know? So that that's in the, in this, in the late sixties. And then you're, you're still in San Francisco all through the seventies. Yeah, I was, I, I was in the Bay area, predominantly San Francisco. I mean, depending on how you define San Francisco, the Bay area, about, that would have been a better way to put it. Sure. Cause we moved down around half moon Bay area, uh, when I was about 11 or 12 and I was still going to school in San Francisco, commuting with my parents. Wow. Um, well, that was because I was afraid, you know, where where we were living in Half Moon Bay, I was afraid that the the cowboys and the uh, farmers were going to beat my ass because I had long hair and I was a weirdo. Uh, <laughs> as it turned out, uh, I got jumped the last day of my uh, sophomore year, I guess it was, of high school. I got jumped and I'd been getting bugged all year, getting my lunch money taken and all that kind of stuff. And so at a certain point I said, what the hell, what's the difference? You know, (laughs) I'm going to try it down in Hatfoon Bay. And lo and behold, I I got down there and I got in my first real band that was actually gigging and writing new material and my first real girlfriend. And it was like, Oh, this was a good choice. (laughs) Right. Excellent. Um, Are you, as you're listening to that and you know, as you as the dead start to evolve into what you were talking about, playing certain uh, song sequences and the repertoire is expanding. Are you identifying with that music because of the guitar playing at that point, the songwriting, just the vibe? What is it that kept you in it that really made you dig the dead at that point? All of the above. I mean, certainly I, I adored Jerry's guitar playing and the songwriting that was happening during that era, whether it was the Hunter Garcia stuff or the Weird Barlow stuff, uh, it was just, it was from another place. It was a, it was another level of songwriting. Um, I think that the dead had that going for them, maybe more than any of the other bands that were around in that scene. I hate to be that blanket about it, you know, cause there were certainly some other brilliant songs, but, um, the consistency of the songwriting with the dead was pretty amazing. Uh, the, the honesty, the authenticity, was was you could it was palpable you could feel it you could sense it you know yeah i don't know and and then also you know the the way that they mixed everything you know it was it was uh it's so funny because it's it's to me it's not reflected in the current crop of deadheads the whole idea was that everybody is so open to so many different musics and the grateful dead embraced all of it whether it was blues, rock and roll, country, bluegrass, folk, reggae, a little bit of jazz here and there, whatever, they embraced it all. I mean, they're, you know, half to two-thirds of their material were cover songs, you know, that they made their own, but they came from having this really broad 
sense of eclectic tastes and embraced a lot of different stuff, you know. And that's one of the things that I really love was the language that they developed that was, you know, it was all of the above in a wonderful gumbo. Right. You mentioned though that you don't think that the deadheads today necessarily see that. Well, you know, I, again, I'm not looking to piss anybody off, but yeah, I, you know, I can't, I, I don't ever like to make totally blanket statements. Sure. Uh, you know, generalizations are dangerous, but I will say that in my experience from talking to a whole lot of deadheads for a whole lot of years, there's a real big percentage of that crowd that is not interested in anything not Grateful Dead. And I just think that's the antithesis of what the band was about. And so to me, it's kind of, I mean, not to, not to judge, I don't want to judge, you know, but it feels a little bit like an insult to what the whole idea behind the thing was, because I think it was all about having an open mind and, and incorporating all of it. And if people had had more of that attitude back in the sixties, we wouldn't have a Grateful Dead. Right. I, I think, you, you bring up a really good point. And I, I think one of the things, you know, because we know there, even starting in the eighties, there's people who didn't listen to anything but the Grateful Dead. Yeah. But having not listening to anything, they're still hearing country and funk and rock and jazz and blues and maybe not discerning it as those dis, uh, different genres. They're discerning that as Grateful Dead music. Well, it's true, but you know, you can, I've, I've had this conversation and I've actually put this into practice where I've tried to turn people on to the original versions of the songs that they're used to hearing by the Grateful Dead. Yeah. They don't like it. They don't want to hear that. It doesn't sound like the dead. And I've talked to, to people that just say blanketly, I, I hate country music. They don't know and country I'm like, music. Really? Do you, do you hate Mama Tried and Friend of the Devil and Big Railroad Blues? And, you know, well, those aren't country. Those are Grateful Dead. Yeah, they're country. That's songs. my point. Exactly. That's my point. And that's one of the reasons I'm not sure if you know, but I do a segment earlier in the podcast. It's already been on by the time we get to this conversation. Uh-huh. I do a segment each week where I profile a different black artist that was in, that influenced the dead. Oh, cool. And it's called the black music moment. Um, for this week, I think I can't even remember who it is. Let me go. Cause I already recorded it. Let me look at the script this week. Oh, it's junior Parker. Awesome. So, you know, I give people before you, before they're listening to you today, they heard a little bit about Junior Parker and where he came from and, and his evolution as a musician and how he influenced Pigpen and Garcia. And then they heard the original version of Next Time You See Me. So that's really kind of a fortuitous lead into my thing, because the truth is black music has been such a huge influence on me. And I think it's probably because of what I was talking about earlier, what was being played around my house when I was a kid, yeah. I developed a really deep connection to, to black music and, and not just the music, but the feel and the, the, the grooves and the soul of it and all of that stuff. And it means a lot to me, you know? Well, you know, just, just speaking, you know, just for the, the just for the African-American, just for the black artist, that was a big reason why I did that segment in this, in the podcast to have the black music moment. And I'm 21 episodes in, and I've still got more artists to, to, to feature. Oh, that's, hell how, yeah. that's how many black artists not only influenced the dead, but directly the Grateful Dead played their songs. Maybe they reinterpreted them or maybe they played them very traditionally, but there was still just such a massive black influence. Oh, yeah. Well, what was going on <clears throat> in that time period in general, not just with the dead, but really, really widespread was this huge surge of interest in the blues. Right. You know? 
um, that was being almost almost discovered as a new kind of music, even though it had been around forever, you know. Uh, and and it was worldwide. You know, there was the blues explosion that came out of England that gave us Cream and Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac and John Mayall, uh, you know, and all all that stuff, you know. And then there was blues going on here that was from the original Cats, you know. I mean, I'm so thankful to Graham because uh, I would go see The Airplane or Quicksilver or The Dead. And by default, I'd see Howlin' Wolf or Albert King or... Otis Junior Redding. You know, well, I never got to see Otis. I would have loved to have seen that show. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's move forward now because you, you kind of take a departure from that world. I don't know if that happens in San Francisco or when you move to L.A., but you start playing all different kinds of music, all different kinds of projects. Can you elaborate on some of that? Yeah. L.A. was later. I, I moved to L.A. in 91. Um, so that was much, much, much later in my life. Uh, I think what happened was I'd listened to The Dead and all that sort of Haight-Ashbury music for about 10 years. Um, and I was just at a place where I was like, well, what else is there? This stuff's great, but what else is there? And what was happening at that point? Well, what was happening at that point for me was country rock, most of which was coming out of L.A. So you had Poco and the Burrito Brothers and Loggins and Messina and a young version of the Eagles. Right. Uh, you know, so you had all of that. You had the Southern Rock thing, which I was pretty much only into the Almonds. But back then, I, 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 could, I could stomach some Marshall Tucker and some of that stuff. Uh, and then on the black level, you had the Philly Soul thing was happening, you know, and there was some really great stuff coming out of that with the OJs and some of those bands, you know, the Gamble and Huff productions. So it was just a sort of a natural progression of, you know, okay, I've listened to this stuff forever. It's really wonderful, but I'm, I'm hungry. I'm curious. What else you got, you know? Right. Um, so I just started listening to that stuff. And, and that was also during the time period where I was much more actively getting out and starting to play with bands and, and learning how to be a band member and learning how to even be a sideman, uh, you know, scratching the surface of getting familiar with recording and all of that kind of stuff. And from then on, it was just kind of a, a constantly shifting thing. You know, uh, when, when the punk rock new wave thing hit, I was very, very, very resistant to it initially. Uh, and then wound up hanging out with some friends and we getting drunk and doing blow and they they throw on uh Elvis Costello's um uh the one the one with Oliver's army and all that stuff on right. it. I can't think of the name offhand. I think it was his second record. Uh and I was just like, who the hell is this? This is brilliant. And then they put on Joe Jackson's Look Sharp. Big Joe Jackson fan right here. And I was sold. I heard Joe Jackson and Elvis Costello, and I just, I, I shifted, I, I was like, I'm not going on that vacation anymore, I'm on this vacation now. Because it was like, it was informed by all my early pop influences, like the Beatles, and, and, and you know, all that sort of early British pop that had come over that I was so in love with as a kid. Right. It was making its way back, but in kind of a tougher, more socially relevant hat, you right. know? I think and the I, Elvis album was this year's model, right? Is that what you said? No, it's, it wasn't that one. Um, that's the one I was thinking of, uh, but but no. Because um, there's one before that. I know that. Yeah, that's My Aim is True. Maybe it was this year's model. I don't think so, but let me. 
because I have both of those. But you mentioned Joe Jackson, who I'm still a huge fan of. I, I love Joe Jackson. Yeah, me too. I mean, yeah, he's. I, I like the early stuff the best. Yeah, I, I like that he's such a chameleon though, because he could do that stuff and that punky, edgy, look sharp stuff, and then do jump and jive. Yes, and go exactly. back and play Louis Prima and Louis Jordan tunes for you with a smoking fast big band. Armed forces. Armed forces. That was like a little bit late. Nobody after that then. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, you picked That's a couple good ones. Love there, and understanding and all that stuff on it. It was a great record. Anyway, so I got into that stuff. And that developed a taste for kind of the indie rock side of the fence. And kind of ever since then, that's kind of where I've been, is I've had I've had a few little uh, legs of interest or whatever you might want to call it. You know, like I'm still very much into soul and R&B and, and blues and, you know, black music, especially old school black music. Um, I love uh, rootsy original country stuff, the old school, you know, 50s and 60s country stuff. Uh, but I still love the indie rock thing and I want to be involved in the indie rock thing. And I, and I do like, I like seventies rock too, you know? So, um, I kind of like it all, you know, yeah, my, man. my idea of a great band that I would like to have would be pretty much the concept of the grateful dead doing a lot of different stuff and just sort of making it ours. Um, but just, you know, run more by my particular and peculiar tastes and the peculiar tastes of, whoever I'm playing with rather than letting the Grateful Dead or any other band dictate my taste. Well, you mentioned a bunch of shit I like. So when you're ready, give me a call. Man. <laughs> when you're ready and you need a drummer, I'll call me. I'd love to play all that stuff. <laughs> um, you, you know, you, I, I guess I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here because you ended up being a sideman for some pretty famous people and some pretty big tours along the way with, with Dave Mason and Huey Lewis and some other. So how does all that come about by going to LA? Uh, well, no, actually. Um, interestingly, I mean, it was certainly furthered by being in L.A., uh, but um, the Huey Lewis thing was just because he, Huey was a Marin band. Right. And at one point, uh, Chris Hayes and Bill Gibson had left the band. They loved the band, but the band wasn't making any money. They were all starving. And at one point, those guys had to, you know, they had to say, we're really sorry, but we're going to split. You know, we need to go make a living. And, uh, and so they held auditions. And I got the gig. I, I, I rehearsed with them for a while. I did one show, count them one, uh, opening for Van Morrison at a f wonderful, funky little place out here called Rancher Nicasio. Mm -hmm. um, and then they got signed. And, you know, righteously, I, 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 it, it broke my heart, but it didn't piss me off. Uh, they offered the gig back to the guys that had done all the original legwork and had really gotten them to the point where they did get signed. So... I didn't get to keep the gig, but I, I was able to put that feather in my cap and that, that felt good. Right. Uh, and then Dave Mason, my buddy, Billy Goodman was playing with Dave and he was leaving the band and I was about to move to LA and that's where Dave was located. And Dave was about to go out on a tour run. So Billy just gave him my name and number and he hired me on the spot on Billy's recommendation. We never even played together before he hired me. Wow. And I toured with him on and off for a little over a year we went to Japan and we went to the Virgin Islands and we played all over the States. So that was cool. And then my buddy, Aud Audie DeLone, uh, who's played with Elvis Costello and Nick Lowe and a bunch of those kind of people. Uh, he got a call from Paul Carrick and Paul was putting together a band to go touring with. And again, Audie recommended me on guitar and Paul said, if you say he's good, he's good. And I got hired without ever even trying out. Um, so that was another nice feather in my cap, you know, 
and then not a lot of name activity after that until much later. I think it was 96 or so. I had moved to Los Angeles. Uh, I was doing a fair bit of session work and playing locally a fair bit. And I had a couple of original bands that I was playing with. Um, but uh, I wound up getting put together with Sophie B. Hawkins. And she'd had a couple of really big hits on, on Top 40 Radio. And, and we toured together on and off for about, I don't know, eight months or a year or something like that. And out of that, out of those connections, I wound up playing with the Rembrandts, uh, who are probably most known for their having done the Friends theme. But the reality is they were a really, really good uh, sort of power pop, you know, uh, doing jangly guitars and Everly Brothers vocals in a time when everybody was doing uh, programmed synthesizers and Lynn Drum. Right. Uh, so they were a breath of fresh air to me when they came out, and I was really thrilled to hook up with them when I did. <laughs> All of this stuff, I mean, it's, it's it's and you did TV work, and you got pop, pop yep. music and cover tunes and 80s stuff. I mean, this is all such a departure from what you grew up with in the Bay Area. Yes and no. I mean, it was, it, I think most of the people that had been doing that stuff earlier on, it was, it was kind of where the music had developed. You know, uh, music in general... Rock and roll wasn't big business or anything back in the day. And by the time the 80s rolled around, rock and roll was big business. And a lot of shit had changed in terms of just how people were thinking about music and what they were doing around music and kind of how it worked, you know. Um, it's one of the things I loved about being brought into the Grateful Dead fold, actually. That's going to be my question is how did you end up back in? I mean, that's essentially back to your roots going back to what you grew up. How did you end up coming back in and becoming a part of the deadfold? Yeah, that was a really, that was a super cool gift from the universe. Um, it couldn't have been more unexpected. Uh, I had been playing around the LA scene, like I was describing. And in my travels, I had met this guy that was a wonderful guy and a wonderful drummer named John Molo. Mm -hmm. And I was in the middle of a, devastating breakup and i got hired to go do a sober vacation in mexico uh, they took over a club med and made it a sober club med for a week and i went down there and i told myself i wasn't going to check my answering machine for the whole week i needed a break a real break so i did that and at the end of the week i checked my machine and there was a message from molo saying you should expect a call from grateful dead management and i was like what and then the next message on the machine was Cameron Sears from Grateful Dead Management saying, hi, this is Cameron Sears. And we're wondering if you'd be willing to come up and play with the boys and see if there's a, see if it's a fit. And I was like, are you kidding? Fuck yeah. You know, and it was a trip because I had pretty much decided I wasn't going to get the gig. I'd always done horribly at auditions. I want, I wanted so desperately to please the people I was auditioning for that I wouldn't be myself. And then I wouldn't get the gig. I probably would have got the gig if I'd been able and willing to be myself. Right. You know? uh, but in this instance, I decided I wasn't going to get the gig in front. So I didn't show up with any of those games in my head. I showed up to play music with these guys because what a treat. Right. Sure. And so I was able to be really present and I was able to really be myself and have a good time with them. And I think that's how I got the gig. I think I was just very authentic with them and very vulnerable and open to the experience. And I think they liked that. Um, 
And yeah, that changed my life because all of a sudden I, I didn't feel like I had to be so image conscious or worrying so much about what do the songs on the radio right now sound like? Do I, you know, can I make my songs sound more like, you know, the, all that kind of head game that I had been playing with myself to try to achieve success in a mainstream music business. Right. And it felt like God, the universe, whatever, had said, dude, that's not what you need to be doing. And the way it happened was I had actually decided to quit music. I was heartbroken over the breakup. I was in my mid-40s. I kind of went, you know, I'm probably too old. It's not going to happen at this point. I think I'll go get my teaching credential and teach little kids and have a band on the weekends sometimes for fun. And the universe was like, no. You've given your whole life to this. You're really good at what you're doing at what you do. How about instead of giving up on it all, we bring you together with one of your favorite bands from your childhood? So great. <laughs> so meant like, to be, man. Fuck yes. <laughs> so is this is this 97 or 98? This is the other ones then? Yeah, yeah, it's 98. Yeah. 98. Uh, that was actually the first time I ever saw you play was on that tour in 98. Yeah, that fur that further tour. Yeah, that would make sense because nobody, that's the thing, you know, I'm, 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 I'm super thankful for that on so many levels because I'd been, you know, doing the best I could to rise above the noise for years and years and years and not much was happening. Right. You know, I was, I was pretty much going to be relegated to, you know, one of those unknown thousands of musicians that goes through life, you know, getting by, but nobody ever hears about them. Right. And, uh, and all of a sudden, you know, it was like, no, 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 no. You get, you, you get, you get this other thing. <laughs> that was a, that was, I saw like eight or nine show, eight or nine of those shows. You know, I'm in my, let's see, eight, nine, I'm in my mid twenties, mid to late twenties. And mm -hmm. I saw a bunch of those shows. If I remember right, that was like Rusted Root and Hot Tuna. Yeah. Yeah. That was like, that was a really, in, that, that tour in particular was a really interesting time for Deadheads because it's the first real tour. I mean, Billy wasn't on it. It was Molo and Mickey. Mm -hmm. um, but that, it was like the first time, the first real tour, if you will, since Garcia's death. Yes. Uh, uh, something for the uh, something big for the Deadheads to get back on the road, seeing them together, at least some of them together for the first time in a few years. Do you, do you feel any pressure stepping into that role at that point? You know, I probably should have. <clears throat> and if I'd been listening, if the if the if the line if the line had been a direct line from my childhood connection to the Grateful Dead to when I actually wound up connecting to them, I probably would have been hella intimidated. But the truth was, I had lost track. I, di I didn't even have an awareness. At that time, I didn't even have an awareness that the Dead had stayed as big as they had stayed. I mean, I knew about Touch of Grey, and I knew that that kind of moved them into a different level. But, you know, they kind of hadn't been on my radar. And so... I mean, it's weird to say, given my background, and, and, you know, I don't mean to insult anybody, you know, but I had just been into other stuff, you know? So when I started playing with them, I, I had felt really embraced by the band. I felt safe and welcome. Uh, and I never, I never wanted to take Jerry's place. I never thought it was possible to take Jerry's place for me or for Kimok. You know, I mean, Jerry was Jerry on so many levels, not just the guitar playing, but that was certainly a huge piece of it. But his whole persona, his whole reality was so unique. I never had any sense that it was my job to, to be Jerry. So did you try and literally like 
I guess the word, did you try and distance yourself from that as far as playing goes? Or, no. I mean, there's certain licks and lines that you know have to be there. Yeah. And, the, and, and, and what my experience was, was, uh, you know, this was, this was even, uh, this was even what happened in the audition. Uh, it was born out in the audition. Um, they said, let's play Sugar Magnolia. And I was like, sure. I know Sugar Magnolia. I've played Sugar Magnolia. I mean, you know, in, in with my friends as a kid, a lot, you know, and I've seen the band play it a lot, you know. So yeah, we can play Sugar Magnolia. Oh, you want to play Friend of the Devil? Sure, I know that. Let's play that. Shake so down. it was easy. Well, that part, and then they go, okay, now we're going to do Shakedown. And I said, what's Shakedown? That's a later tune. Then you yeah, to- interesting. Know. We're going to do Sailor Saint. What's that? How's that go? You know, so it was a really interesting thing because so what happened was like all those old, old tunes that I had grown up listening to and dropping acid to as a kid. I probably played a lot more influenced by Jerry because that's the way they were burned into my unconscious. Right. on. I heard Jerry's licks in my head. and I was, I'm not very good at aping Jerry. There's guys that have really made that their their life's thing is to, is to really understand what Jerry did and, 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 and honor it by mimicking it. And I don't mean that in a negative sense. Right. No. Um, that was never my thing. You know, I, 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 I can pull out certain things that sound a little Jerry-ish and I can kind of play with a little bit of a Jerry-ish attitude when it feels appropriate, but I'm never going to be a great Jerry clone or whatever you want to call that there's there's other guys that are way better at that than i will ever be you know um but yeah i mean you know if if i was playing one of those older songs i would i would definitely be channeling jerry like i might because that's how you felt it yeah and then the other songs would come on and i would just play them however mark might play them because they didn't have any deep resonant thing that had already gone before that's awesome. You uh, in that band, you know, this was a unique thing, obviously. But you, 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 you already mentioned Steve. You guys shared the chair in that band. So, is it what kind of adjustment is there to having two lead guitar players? Do you guys oh, have God. to do you have to define? <laughs> do you have to define your roles, or do you just go for it? Or well, you know, the 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 logic minded part of me, the Mister Organization part of me, that my my uh, left brain stuff would say, yes, absolutely, you must do that. You must define the roles and you must create this space and know what it is and then you can people that space. But that's not what happened. What happened was very Grateful Dead. Um, I was brought into the fold. Then there was some disagreement about who should be the guitar player. And in classic Grateful Dead fashion, they couldn't come to a consensus about either one of us so they took us both, and they never told us anything. Just go for it. Was it. Just, it was just play. I mean, I remember one night at a show, um, I don't remember what song it was or anything, but I know there was supposed to be a guitar solo. And I looked at Steve to see if he was going to go, and he looked at me to see if I was going to go, and we both kind of had this slight deer-in-the-headlights kind of vibe going. And all of a sudden, we hear Phil from right next to us going, Somebody play something! it was i mean he was right you know here music was just going by and we were like looking at each other like what are we supposed to do (laughs) i remember and you you would never remember this but i remember i was backstage in st louis y'all put at riverport and 
I, I don't even remember how or why I was backstage, but you and Steve were standing there. We were all back in like the dining area. And I walked up to you and I introduced myself and uh, said, you know, I'm really digging it. You guys are doing great. I really enjoyed it, especially the two guitar thing. And I just remember going, hey, Steve, he likes it. I, I, I sensed a genuine joy that you really appreciated hearing that what I thought, not just whoever it was, it just happened to be me, but whoever, this fan that was watching it, recognized and thought it was working. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah, because, I mean, of, of course, we both had our doubts, you know, and, and, and even though I don't think either one of us was anywhere near even thinking about filling Jerry's shoes, we still knew there was a big hole to fill. Right. Right. And so this is, is the, this, this time that gets you back in. That, that's what directly leads to Rat Dog for you, correct? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I tried out for Rat Dog right after that initial other ones tour and I didn't get the gig. Um, I think the consensus was I sounded a little too much like Jerry and Bob wanted something very different for that band. And they went with another guy that was a friend of uh, Comente's and, and, uh, and Jay's that was from the East Bay. That was a, a little more from the jazz scene. Who was that? Um, a guy named Dave McNabb. I don't even remember that. He went on to play with, uh, Shelby Snow or Shelby Lynn, um, who I love. Uh, but yeah, he's a great guitar player. Just wasn't a fit. Um, and so after they did a tour with him and decided that it wasn't a fit, they called me back and I wound up being brought into the band. And in a lot of ways, you know, Rat Dog was great and it lasted for a really, really long time. But not a lot changed yeah. over the course of the years. You know, we, there were some changes here and there were some personnel changes and we came up with some new material here and there. But, but overall, I can say, yeah, that was a really wonderful ride for 15 years. And that would almost encapsulate the whole thing. The, the music, though, even if, if the catalog didn't expand immensely during those years, although it did, I know, because it was very more blues-based when Johnny was in the band early on, St. Louis and Johnny Johnson. Um, mm -hmm. But even if the catalog didn't expand much musically, it had to have evolved over the years, yes? Oh, a lot, yeah. I mean, the truth is, I really struggled in the early Rat Dog years because I was rigid. I wanted to hear it a certain way. In my mind, it was su supposed to be uh, Grateful Deadish. But we had all these people in the band that were coming from jazz. And they hadn't really ever listened to the Grateful Dead very much. And so at that point in time, it felt to me like there were almost two camps and we were butting heads. Now, I don't know that that's the way it really was. I don't know that that's the way other people were hearing it. But that was my process. And then over time, the jazz-influenced guys listened to way more Grateful Dead and started to get a handle on what that was about. And I started to let go of some of my rigidity and we developed a sound that was Grateful Dead-ish, but allowed for the jazz influences and some of the jazz language that hadn't made much of an appearance in Grateful Dead music to come through. That's great. I, I enjoyed the hell out of it. It was, it was different. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was so different. And I, early on, I really dug it because it was different tunes even, you know? Both of those bands for you especially after what you'd been doing for all of these, these other years coming up, it had to be, it's so different all of a sudden. And, and I don't, how am I going to put this? You've gone from at least what I perceive as song oriented music 
back to this place where you're just free to jam, jam, jam? You know, yes and no. I mean, I always treated the dead thing pretty much the way I treat my own thing, which is when we're in the song, I might be improvising in that I might not play the exact same rhythm part every night. I might be actually making up what, what my part would be, but I'm always thinking and feeling it like it's a record. I'm always trying to stay out of the way. I'm always trying to fit with what everybody else is playing and make those little jigsaw puzzle pieces of music that fit together and support the vocal and the song more than my own uh, letting my dogs run free, you know? And then when the instrumental stuff shows up, all bets are off, right? you know? Which is kind of the way I've always run my own band. I mean, that was what Puddle Luck was all about. It was with my music instead of the dead music, you know, but or our music. Right. Um, but the idea was, you know, I, I've always wanted to be in a band that could kind of like bring it the way Taj Mahal or Ry Cooter or Bonnie Raitt or, you know, any of those great artists do for the song, but then also incorporate the freedom and expressiveness that the dead brought when they would go jump off the gangplank and, and, and dive off into whatever was going to happen, trusting, you know, right. You 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 mentioned something interesting for me, <clears throat> talking about playing for the song, which is what every musician should be doing all the time in the first place. But mm -hmm. besides Rat Dog, you know, you did some other projects with members of the band, and one of them I'm thinking of for me because I'm a drummer is Planet Drum. Sure. And ninety that was ninety nine, I think, because you guys played Woodstock. I remember yep. that. Yep. Um, and as we as you can well imagine, Mickey had a huge influence on me. But that, that version of Planet Drum, even though it wasn't quite as percussion heavy as a lot of them with, with Giovanni and, and, and Zakir and all of them, it still had Molo and Mickey and another percussionist with a giant rig. And if I'm not mistaken, the, the, the singers also played some percussion. Yeah. So oh, yeah. There's still a lot going on. And this is obviously Mickey's version of everything. It's percussion heavy. Does that make it more difficult for you as a guitar player to find space to play in? Fuck no. No, I love all that rhythmic subdivision stuff. It gives me way more stuff to uh, to sort of feed me and 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 inspire me to try different things. You know, I'm. I think one of the things that can happen musically is people can get uh, myself, very much included, can get uh, uh, rhythmically predictable. You know, you start thinking more about the notes and not enough about the rhythm. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you're very creative with the notes and you're spinning all these cool melody lines and everything else, but rhythmically there's a sameness. And I really love, you know, three against four and some of those, you know, some of the rhythmic things that happen that don't always get a whole lot of airtime. Right. You know, that can happen for non-melodic players. I shouldn't say that for non-melody instrument players, because a drummer can still play melodically, but the, the, that rhythmic I'll find times in my career where I'll, whether it was in original bands or dark star or shit, I just played the same fill four times in a row mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or I just played that same fill in every song, which is the equivalent of playing that same guitar lick in every solo or whatever. Uh, and, just, and I do that by the way, it drives me nuts <laughs> when I do that. I'm like, fuck, don't play that fill the rest of the night, even though you're not supposed to be thinking about what you're playing, think about it and don't play that. See, but you know what? For me anyway, I mean, I'm not saying you're wrong by any stretch of the imagination, but for me personally, where I had to come to with that 
because I didn't really know how to deal with it and still be able to be in the moment. That's the t- that's the rub. You know, I I just decided, hey, you know what? Those licks that I do frequently, those funny little places where it feels awkward when I went from one thing to another thing, those are the things that make me not the other guys that are out there playing. And I need to be kind to myself and trust myself and go, okay, I do that a fair bit. I guess that's part of my style. Man, I'm taking those words. I'm thank you. That's 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 great advice for someone who, like me, can tend. You try not to, but you can tend to overthink what you're doing at times. Sure. Yeah. Well, and, you know, uh, you know that famous Ray Charles. I think it's. I was told it was a Ray Charles quote. I can't. Don't quote me on that because I don't know that it's true. But there, there was a quote that somebody attributed to Ray Charles, and I don't remember the specific quote, but the essence of it was, you know, those things that happen when you're playing and they really bug you. And you wish you sounded more like that other guy that you really admire. Those are the things that make you, you do more of that. Awesome. That's, <laughs> that's yeah, man. I'm glad. I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. That's great. It makes me feel good. Cause you know, sometimes you just, sometimes you get so wrapped up in worrying about it. You try not to, because you, especially in improvisational music, like we play, because you want to be free and you don't want to have your mind muddled. You want it to be open for the notes to come out. Yet that's not always the easiest thing to do. Yeah. Let's move on then for a minute. Uh, uh, let's get nerdy for a second. Let's talk about equipment. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sure, yeah, yeah. and I mean, I can't get super nerdy because I'm a drummer, not a guitar player, but I'm, I'm sure you have numerous axes, of course, like all you guitar players do. Do you have certain go-to axes that help you define your sound? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And they, they all make me play very differently depending on which one I pick up. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I have the good fortune to have a 1951 Fender Nocaster, uh, which if anybody doesn't know what that means, it's before they ever made Telecasters, they were called the Broadcaster. Yeah. And uh, the, when they released the Broadcaster, Gretsch made a drum kit that was called the Broadcaster. Right. And Gretsch called Leo Fender and said, uh-uh, you can't use Broadcaster. So for a year, they put the guitars out. They didn't have a name. They didn't know what to call them. Interesting. After that, they became a Telecaster, but I have a no-caster. I have the one that came out in 51 and didn't have a name on it. And when I play that guitar, I'm automatically going to be influenced by that whole Bakersfield sound and that old early country thing. It just happens. When that guitar gets in my hand, it wants to play that music. Of course. You know? Of course. And when I get my SG in my hands, I have an old SG Les Paul, a 1962 Les Paul SG when that guitar gets in my hands, I'm feeling early Clapton. I'm feeling early Peter Green. I'm just feeling that shit. You know, that makes so much sense to me because if I get the the chance to get behind an old Slingerland kit or an old Gretsch kit where the heads are tuned really high, that immediately takes me to that jazz place, you know, and that bebop place. And yeah, sure, you can't that sound, that feeling, that little configuration. You can't help but go there. It's yeah. very much the similar thing. So then my question would be, what is your go-to for a dead-related project? What's the one that gets you there? You know, again, it's it really depends um, because there's so many different ways I feel you can approach a dead project. You know, I mean, <clears throat> if I pull out the telly, I'm going to still play dead music, but it might be twangier. Right. If I pull out the SG and maybe step on a little overdrive box or something, 
it might be more influenced by Jerry in 68 or 69 when he was using Gibsons in a more distorted tone before he kind of got that really clear, clean sound that everybody's come to associate with him. Um, so yeah, just, uh, my go-to guitarists that I bring to gigs most of the time now are my SG and, and the, the SG Les Paul and the Nocaster. What about, what about effect wise? Is there, if I'm going to be specific and, and is there anything from Garcia's arsenal that grabbed you enough to incorporate into your sound? Or does that just go for when you're playing the Grateful Dead music? Um, the duck, I guess, you know, what, 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 what Kim Ock calls the duck, which, you know, the Ottawa or the, or the filter. Uh, I never used one. I was aware of them, but I had never used one. Um, but I needed it for estimated it for nothing else. Right. So I got one back in the day and I started learning about it. And, uh, normally I don't like effects that take over the sound of the guitar. I like effects that modify it, but it still feels and sounds like a guitar to me. Mm -hmm. That effect doesn't do that, but I've come to really love it because what it is, is I can kind of use that envelope that happens um, to mimic the envelope of a saxophone. Uh, and so, you know, it varies depending on how hard or soft I play. And I find that those filters, when they're set right, can be really, really expressive. So I really like that pedal a lot. Um, I love delay. I just love all the, the spaciousness and airy quality and dreaminess and all of that stuff that delay can incorporate. I use very little modulation. I hardly ever do chorusing or phasing or flanging or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, I don't dislike it. It's just not me. Sure. Um, sure. Mostly, I'm, I, I, I find myself really appreciating more or less meat and potatoes kind of uh, guitar sounds. I, I like traditional, old school rock roots and Americana guitar sounds. Well, and that's leaving more room for your fingers and hand and, and hand to be what matters, not the effect. That's right. That's right. I want something that kind of like that, that, that settles into the music that finds its place, that it lives comfortably with what, with everything else that's going on. This has been an awesome conversation. Um, before I let you go, I do this with every, every one of my guests. A okay. quick, a quick lightning round. You don't have to just quick answers if you can get. All right, all right. First Grateful Dead show. Oh gosh, uh, it might have been that one that I mentioned where the doors. Play. Oh no, because because I didn't see the dead then. Right. Um, wow. Uh, I don't know, but it it, it would have been in '66. But I <laughs> That's I amazing. can't think of what it was, what show it was. Just the fact that it's 66 is so cool. Um, favorite Grateful Dead show. You got one of those? Uh, gosh, again, not really. Um, you wouldn't be the first one to say that. Yeah, I, I mean, I saw so many, but they all kind of run together. You know, they were all very special. Right on. Studio recordings or live recordings of the Grateful Dead? Ah, uh, I like both. I can't, it's, uh, you know. That's a standard answer, too. You know, <laughs> I know a lot of people don't like the, the studio stuff, but I, I, there's a lot of it that I, you know, there's a lot of it I don't like, but there's a lot of it I really love. What's your favorite, what's, what's the favorite album for you? Um, I can give you top three. Sure. Go for it. But they're, but they're all, well, I'll give you a top four. Cause there's at least one studio one in there. Uh, live dead skull fuck Europe 72 wake of the flood. 
Right on. L- oh, live Dead comes wor- wor- Working Man's and American Beauty. Have that is so hard. I know. Live, <laughs> Dead, live Dead comes up a lot. That yeah. one comes up a lot from people. That's okay, this, this one's a little tougher for people. Your favorite non-Grateful Dead album, that Desert Island album, man. No such thing. I could, I could spend some time and give you my top 20. I don't think I could even narrow it down to the top 10. Wow. First job. I think the first job I had was just getting out of high school. I I went and did the janitor thing at an old folks home. <laughs> all right, I've had I've had all kinds of that's I've had people who uh, I can't remember who it was who was a uh, uh, he cleaned industrial cooking utensils or cooking vats at, at an old folks home or at a place like that too. Molo wow. had a great first job. Molo worked in a gas station. Okay. Okay. And he said in DC, he sat in a gas station late at night on the night shift and just listened to music. Uh, nice. Molo's interview was great, by the way. I didn't mention that to you. I've had him on a few episodes ago, and you can imagine. Uh, favorite color? That keeps changing too. I think right now, it would probably be a really deep royal purple. Purple has actually been a very. It's my favorite color. It's been a very popular choice amongst the musicians when I ask that question. Purple comes up a lot. Interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, favorite venue to play? Oh, gosh. Uh, that might be the original Fillmore. All right. So you're one of the few who can say that they played there. Um, uh, best city for a day off? Mm. For me? Yeah. Very possibly Austin, Texas. All right, man. I love Austin. Great town. So much music, and I'm a barbecue geek. There you so. go. There you go. Right on. Uh, first car. Uh, 1949 Chevrolet pickup truck. Yeah. Uh, current car. Uh, 1949 Cooper. Chevrolet pickup truck. Yeah, I wish. <laughs> 2010 Mini Cooper. There you go. All right. Mark Karen, thank you so much for being here today. I, I really appreciate you taking time. Hopefully, our paths are going to cross again soon now that we're all able to kind of sort of get back out there. I sure hope so. Where are you? You're in St. Louis, right? Yeah, I am. You come here. I got a few barbecue places for you, buddy. All right. Right on. We got some good ones. Thank you for taking the time today, man. Be safe. All right, Rob. You take care, man. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode, and I'd like to thank Mark Karen and Tim Zuha for being here. I'd also like to thank my sponsors, Sarno Music Solutions and Blue Jade Audio, The Clean Store, The Authenticity Academy, and Grateful Sweats. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support the cause, please consider a monthly Patreon subscription that offers some great bonus content every week, including this week uh, a ton of outtakes from the Mark Karen interview. There was so much more we talked about, and it got really deep. Uh, There's some really cool stuff in there. You can also show your love with a one-time contribution, and please remember that a portion of your contribution will go to the Rex Foundation. Get info about this and everything related to the podcast at our website, www.themusicplaystheband.net. Any love is much appreciated as we try and keep this show rolling along, so thank you very much. The Music Plays the Band is produced by myself and the production and songwriting team Brothers Lazaroff here in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find out more about them at www.brotherslazaroff.com. The opening and segue music you are hearing are remixes of portions of DSO drum segments that are produced by my drumming partner, Dino English. I will be back in two weeks with The Double Deuce, episode number 22. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and please stay vigilant. 
You know, we're starting to go back in the right direction, and then we don't, and then we do, and then we don't. So it's really up to us to get us out of this thing. So please take care of yourselves and those around you. Thanks for being here. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.